0: Welcome to Desperately Seeking the 80s. I am Meg.
1: And I am Jessica. And Meg and I have been friends since 1982.
0: We got through middle school and high school together here in New York City, where we still live. And where we are podcasting about New York City in the 80s. I do ripped from the headlines. And I do pop culture. So Jessica, this is the first week after our epic back to school special, our two-parter. I felt very,
1: very proud and accomplished after we finished that. And we've gotten some really good
0: feedback. We really have. Most notably, I will say, Mm -hmm. from Jessica Doyle, who was Jennifer's very close friend and is uh, featured very prominently in the documentary that I was talking about. Really? And she reached out and said, thank you for bearing witness and setting the story straight. (gasps) XO. JD. I actually literally just
1: got chills. Yeah. So that meant a lot. Um, my dad, unsolicited, and, you know, this is a man, you know, who is of a certain generation, mm-hmm. and I would not have expected him to say what he did, which is that he remembered the headlines and all of that when it happened, um, but that our perspective was something that he never heard he never thought of and it really changed the way that he understood what happened and it surprised me just because you know he was my parent saying don't go to dorians but still the whole thing kind of was just a mishmash in his head that's so, interesting you know like it was it was interesting to hear that it took this many years to crystallize
0: and that maybe it wasn't i was thinking that we had didn't have a clear story of what happened at the time because we were young, but maybe nobody did well, I don't think anybody did but
1: i I mean we all had we all had little bits and pieces, but even you know like just being a parent of a kid mm-hmm. who was in that scene, you know it must have been
0: bewildering and do you want to talk about the fact that we saw? <gasps> we have a new friend. Yeah, we
1: have a friend. Our oft-quoted uh pal of Flaming Pablum blog fame, Alex, uh met with us, the poor man. I mean, we sat across from him like a panel of nutballs. Um, <laughs> nut <balls>. um <laughs> but we met at Old Town Bar and had burgers and beers and caught up and compared notes and I couldn't have had a better time we did not so stop laughing fun. for about even a second Yeah, like so that's going to
0: be the first of many I'm sure yes and I, I think I, I know
1: he will be listening so I'm just letting you know Alex that you are going to be a guest whether oh, you like it or not You're gonna, we're going to have you come in as like guest commentary
0: we should be so lucky alright oh So,
1: yeah,
0: should we get started? Meg, what do you have for us today? Well, my engagement question for you, okay, is, do you feel lucky? Do you consider yourself a lucky person? What are you, Dirty
1: Harry? Or was that like... (laughs) Charles Bronson, do you feel lucky? Oh punk? no,
0: not in a threatening way at all like do you just go through life considering yourself kind of like a lucky person? Well, you know I don't
1: <laughs> I don't i I just i'm I'm too much of an anxiety ridden uh, maniac to think of myself objectively as I stroll through life mm-hmm. as lucky, but in moments of peace and calm, I, I'll tell you, honestly, the older I get, the more I have these moments where I just think, Oh, my God, think of all of the different scenarios that you could have been born into. Mm. And, you know, from the the luck of birth, place and time and situation, through to like, even two nights ago, I was lying in bed. And I was like, I'm lying in bed in this really lovely place with my little dog on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, and I do things with my friends. Like, what could be better? So, yes, I do. It's a very long yes.
0: Yeah, no, that was – I was expecting an answer along those lines. But more specifically, do you gamble ever? Oh, you mean like – I, I like, expected you to answer the way that you did, but oh. now this is sort of a follow-up. I
1: don't believe in luck that way. I oh. think it's I think we live in a chaotic world and stuff happens that we can assign meaning to and we can we can backtrack into figuring out how a sequence of events came, you know, to to take place. But I don't believe in some cosmic luck factor. Okay, so you don't gamble. Oh, hell no. Interesting. I mean, for what? Just money. Like, yeah, but... <laughs> fun. Yeah, I don't find it fun. I, I find it very stressful to throw money in the toilet bowl.
0: All right. Okay. I'll see how you like this story. This will All be right. interesting. Oh, um, yeah. My sources for today are New York Post from 2018, New York Times from 2019, LottoAnalyst.com, and YouTube. YouTube. In November 1982, Curtis Sharp, a maintenance worker at Bell Laboratories living in Newark, New Jersey, making $300 a week, asked his friend to buy him a New York State lottery ticket from a store near Port Authority bus terminal. It was the fourth ticket he'd ever bought in his life. But the next thing he knew, he was $5 million richer. He had beaten... The one in 1,948,292 odds to win the biggest prize in New York State history. Wow. At the New York Lotto press conference to announce his win, he showed up with his wife, Barbara, their three children, his girlfriend, Jacqueline. Stop it. And two of her four children. Were any of her four children his children? I do not know. I do not think so. I think this this he was dating Jacqueline, but I'm not sure they had procreated yet. Was
1: was his was he still married to his wife? Yes. Oh, okay.
0: Quote, my wife was going to get a divorce, but she seems not too sure now. Mm. <laughs> and he and Jacqueline were planning to marry in July, but she also still needed to divorce her husband. This is a tangled web, Meg. And then $5 million dropped into their lives. Curtis decided to receive 20 yearly payments of $238,695 minus the 20% for taxes, rather than a lump sum. He was given that choice. Mm -hmm. He decided to stay at his job. And to use the bulk of his winnings to support his two families, who all got along really well together. Shocking. I know. They were real the pictures from the press conference, they're all very happy. Wow. Yeah. All right. Quote It's something to make them happy. If they're happy, I'm happy. This is from Curtis. Mm. I know. He arranged- don't tell me someone's gonna kill him now. No. Oh, okay. Phew. No, no, no. All no. Right. no murder today. <gasps> We're having a murder-free day? We're having a murder-free day. Oh, okay. He arranged trust funds for his children and ended up giving Barbara a home and $1 million. He did end up marrying Jackie and bought a $555,000 ranch in New Jersey and a $60,000 Cadillac. He became quite a celebrity. He was known as the $5 million man and starred in TV commercials for the New York Lottery featuring Curtis in his signature gray bowler hat. Is this beginning to ring a bell? And Lou Eisenberg, who had won $5 million in 1981, the year before. And the two of them are in the back of a Rolls Royce limo. And at the end of the commercial... What do you call that um, when you – what is it? In in a car when you Sunroof? Sunroof. They open up the sunroof and Curtis comes out of the sunroof and yells out to a hot dog vendor. And Lou, in the meantime, is rolled down the window of the limo. Um, Don't be stingy with the mustard.
1: Do you remember this? This is weirdly ringing bells. Yeah.
0: I will post it. Okay. Lou and Curtis had met at Curtis's press conference and become fast friends. Hmm. Quote This is from Lou I was the first Jew that won $5 million in New York, and he was the first black man who won $5 million in New York, and we were both just working stiffs. I liked him because he reminded me of me. He was dressed to the nines and came in singing a song. Curtis had his wife on one arm and his mistress on the other. I laugh myself silly. <laughs> So, now I'm going to do an extended side note on the history of the New York State Lottery because it's pretty fascinating. Okay. Lottery games have existed in different communities since forever. But the ways the winning numbers were chosen were always pretty unreliable and easy to rig. But in the early 1920s, a black man who lived in Harlem and worked as a messenger for a brokerage house. Casper Holstein came up with a system of choosing the winning numbers that was fair, foolproof, and easy to announce and disseminate. The Clearinghouse was an operation that managed the exchanges of money among New York City banks and published these numbers in the paper every day. So Casper used the Clearinghouse totals to produce a random combination of a three digit number, and this became known simply as the numbers because it was completely random but it was published daily mm-hmm. so it wasn't it, you didn't have to it, it, yes. you weren't trusting you have, someone right. to pull something out of a hat you know no 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 i it's really it is really smart it. yes um and i wrote down exactly like how he figured it all out but that's probably minutia that is not i'll, I'll post that if okay. people are interested his system became incredibly popular because it permitted a larger number of gamblers to play the same game, mm. and the people trusted the game wasn't fixed. Holstein became known as the Bolita King, going on to earn an estimated two million dollars from his lotteries. Now he's you know running a numbers wow. game. In fact, the numbers provided an underground economy for the black community in New York. Numbers runners were major employers, providing jobs to their neighbors and providing their families with a middle-class life and ultimately generational wealth. The numbers sustained lucky players through the Great Depression. If it was your day, a nickel could turn into 30 bucks, and that's kind of a big deal. Yeah. While the black communities were largely underserved by the formal economy, the numbers filled that void. By 1971, the money from the numbers was bankrolling many small businesses from bars to restaurants to corner groceries and employing 100,000 workers across five boroughs. Pretty big deal. Wow. Right? The Harlem numbers runners were often philanthropic and civic minded, supporting the community in many ways. Colin Powell's father bought his family home after he hit it big with the numbers. Lena Horne's father Teddy was a numbers runner.
1: Wait, yeah. so I have to, I have to ask you this: yeah. What is a numbers runner?
0: Like he was the guy who organized a numbers game. I see. I and see. if you're the organizer, you take a cut.
1: I see. Okay,
0: I got it. So these are and it's lucrative. So
1: okay, so this is pre-state
0: game. Yeah, this is.
1: Individual lotteries. Right. And it's private lotteries. Illegal.
0: Yes. So it's all being done.
1: I get it. No, you know, it's so I've always heard the lie. phrase running the numbers. Yeah. And I never knew what it
0: meant. Like Colin Powell's dad just won. Mm-hmm. So that's how he could afford his house. But Lena Horn's dad was like Ran a game? the guy. Yeah. Amazing. In fact, it was going so well that the New York state government wanted in on the action. Gangsters. So since 1967, there has been a government-sanctioned lottery. But it was kind of a hot mess because they were picking numbers the old-fashioned way as opposed to Casper's way. And it was cumbersome and corrupt and not very popular. Because if you can't really trust the people who are running it, it's like... Why would you do it? Yeah. Yeah. So, in 1980, now we get to the 80s, okay. they decided, the government, to steal Casper's idea and instituted a legal pick-three lottery while cracking down on the street-run numbers games, which by this point were generating $800 million to $1.5 billion a year in the Black communities. Now... If the numbers game had been legalized, the money would have stayed in the community. But really, what they ended up doing, the state just siphoned it away. I'm feeling rage. I'm sorry. One Harlem numbers parlor posted a sign in their window saying, quote, Does Governor Kerry know how many people are working in the numbers industry? He is sending our families back to welfare. We don't want welfare. We want our jobs. And while proceeds from the New York state lotto were earmarked for education.
1: We all know that didn't go there.
0: Well, it did. But lawmakers then took the opportunity of this windfall to cut the education budget. But back to Curtis and Lou.
1: Okay.
0: Our two millionaires. Okay. They lived a good life for 20 years. Curtis loved fancy cars and casinos and giving money to his friends and relatives. He donated to a lot of charities. He gave $15,000 to help victims of the Ethiopian famine. Wow. Feed the world. Yeah. Lou loved to travel and also loved to gamble. They both really liked to gamble. Okay. His alimony payments to two women... Ate up more than half of his winnings. Wait, is this Curtis or Lou? This is Lou. Okay. They really did have a lot in common. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is a quote from Lou. It was easy come, easy go. There was always a check coming soon, but 20 years flew by. And oh, then dear. the check stopped. Stopped. Mm. Quote, I started getting payouts at 53. I thought, well, I'll probably be dead by 73 and that'll be that. But Lou lived to be 93. (gasps) Oh
1: Oh my god. That's like a classic, like you know, TV sitcom genie wish. You know, like, oh, and
0: I'll give you longevity. (laughs) Ha ha. All right. Sorry. Sorry, sorry. He celebrated his 90th birthday with Curtis in 2018. How old was Curtis? He's 10 years younger, so he was 80. I love these two. They were so sweet. Oh, sweet. And so supportive of each other. They used to call each other all the time.
1: This is the most charming story. And
0: go like, how are you doing? How are you doing? How's your (laughs) money?
1: Okay. (laughs) exactly.
0: So Lou had run out of all of his money. And was living in a mobile home for this 90th birthday party, supported entirely by $1,800 a month in Social Security. Mm. But he was happy. As long as he's happy, who he's cares? He's totally happy. Great. Curtis also spent all his money and ultimately became a Baptist minister. Interesting. He still had the pension from his maintenance job. Because remember, he didn't quit. Oh,
1: smart man. Very smart.
0: But he gave away a lot of that too. Hmm. Quote, if someone needs something, I help out. Well, that's very sweet. Curtis and Lou stayed close friends until they passed away. (gasps) Curtis passed away in 2020. Lou in 2021. Lou outlasted Curtis? Uh Uh-huh. And neither regretted the highs and lows of hitting it rich. This is a quote from Lou. It was great. Are you kidding? I'm in love with this story.
1: <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad. Wait, so there's no shoe that's going to drop? No, that's it.
0: They're oh just happy. They had. They lost their. They got money. They lost money, but they were happy. This is and very good friends. Incredibly sweet and. I swear to God, all these women and all these children, no one seemed all that upset with them. That's – I don't even know what to say. It's so heartwarming. I mean, they didn't necessarily stay married to them, but they – Who cares if they It didn't feel like friends? there were bad feelings. Oh, my god. And there are – you do read stories about lottery winners. Where know, things like, go terribly wrong. Horribly yes. wrong. Like some – Guy's brother tried to have him murdered so he could, you know, get well, that's the money. I was, from was the,
1: honestly waiting for the, yeah. you know, who took out of him you know, who.
0: Oh, this is so. They sweet. were nice guys, and they gave all their money away. Well, they gambled a lot of their money too. Yes, I mean they were playing the lottery, so. Yes, they they like the games of chance.
1: I have a friend who had a friend who I knew well, who, and here's one of the reasons that I, I have a visceral reaction that's negative about the the gambling. He bought lotto tickets and scratch-off cards in multiples every day mm. and wound up, and he had like a, a Wall Street job, but he, he wound up having to like be a roommate in a small room in a multiple.
0: That's a lot of scratch-offs. Dude,
1: I'm telling you, it was you know, an an illness. He had a gambling problem. And, you know, I think when people think about gambling problems, they think about Vegas or Atlantic city or what have you. And, you know, it comes in a lot of forms and and people buying the, the, you know, scratch off cards and, and lotto tickets and all of that. It's no joke. So, I mean, this is the most, this is the rosiest version of this story. And Lewin except Curtis for the story.
0: New York state government being so greedy and awful to all the people in the Harlem community who were doing really well by themselves. And and, and
1: <laughs> why let them have prosperity, damn it.
0: Yeah. Horrible. Hmm. Take it back. There's some amazing books, too, about uh, how people were choosing the numbers there There's this whole thing about interpreting dreams and if like you dreamt of a sheep or a pig, a sheep was number five and a pig would be six and you would go to people and they would interpret your dreams and tell you what your number should be. This is
1: why gambling, again, does not resonate with me because it is a world of – I love magical thinking. If we all agree, it's magical thinking. But this is like, you know, I could – I could set up a storefront and be like, you know, Madam Jessica psychic. Well, will help you interpret your dream. You know, that's not a bad side gig. Maybe that's my new side <laughs> I know. hustle. What's so bad about that? I don't know. I don't know. <sighs> anyway, that's, but you know, the, the whole world of the, the lottery has been, um, I think fascinating to people for a very long time. And, and it pops up in pop culture. Do you remember Nicolas Cage and Bridget Fonda in the movie "It Could Happen to You"? He plays a cop. Yeah, she's a waitress. It was I think, based on a real story. Yes, and Rosie Perez plays his. Um, he gave her a tip. His wife. Right? Yes, yes. Like, and some, and of course, like it's a rom com, so the two of them wind up together at the end. But yeah, like they, and they wind up having to like share the winnings or. Something like that, but it was sweet, and I haven't thought about that movie in decades. And what was the tagline that you remembered? Hey, you never know. I'm I. I don't even know what to do with myself because this is so happy. I, I'm I. <laughs> I normally steal myself for some some horror show, and and I I feel uh, disoriented. <laughs> this is so sweet. Hey, so thank you, friendship. He It's Alfie okay. Was wrong. Alfie feels very bad that he's not been asked to be a guest on
0: the podcast. I feel like he is now though. He
1: is. All right. Well, maybe if he sits in my lap, he can chillax a little
0: bit. Oh, okay. We'll see what he's happens. good. So I have
1: an engagement question for you. Great. All right. In the 80s,
0: what did you read for pleasure? I remember summers of Jackie Collins and Interview with a vampire and and sort of pulp fiction-y kind of stuff. Ah uh, yes. I remember
1: this is pre-the eighties, but when Judy Bloom's groundbreaking book Wifey came out that mm. made the rounds in my my bunk at camp. Right. Yes. But when we were in high school, what I was thinking of is, you know, there there was a culture of cool that surrounded us in New York that was really distinctly different from any other city, I think, in the world at that time, which was magazine culture. Okay. We had Interview magazines. Oh, true, yeah. Right? And we had, um, like, a lot of fashion magazines were coming out of New York, obviously. They were not purchased yet by giant conglomerates. But there was one magazine that was so... And obviously, like New York Magazine, everyone was reading that, and it was less of a rag than it is now. But there was one magazine that was so quintessentially cool, and it, in my opinion, really created a a sensibility and a tone for humor as we even experience it right now. And
0: humor, as, specifically humor. Specifically humor,
1: which is Spy Magazine.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: And, you know,
0: who was that, Graydon Carter?
1: Yes. I've read a lot of commentary over the years about how, um, you know, our generation is a generation of smarminess or sarcasm as mm. humor and, you know, snark mm-hmm. being. Oh, thing. yes. And as much as I would like to say that's not true. It really is, <laughs> and where did that begin? At least in my awareness, it began with Spy Magazine. In reality, it was really probably um, uh, the Harvard Lampoon and then the National Lampoon. Well, but were those were the writers like, that
0: he gathered for?
1: No, okay, no, and those but those guys were more out and out broadly funny. Yeah,
0: um,
1: Spy Magazine. Focused entirely on New York City, it did not care about anything else. It was one hundred percent New York, crazy, and it was n- just making fun of and and skewering every person who thought they were something. Mm-hmm. Um, so it had a, like at the time, I remember thinking that it was just the coolest, the funniest, the most edgy like and and it was but as with so many things in this podcast i went back and read it and i was like what a bunch of (laughs) shitheads
0: like this is well give me an example so i
1: but but it's still funny yeah it's it's sort of i so what i'm gonna do one of the comments that we got relatively recently was that uh someone very kindly said that they liked uh when i read from the new york literary uh So I'm going to do a little reading today from Spy magazine, and this is from their very first issue. Spy came out in 1986, and Graydon Carter, who wound up being the editor in chief of Vanity Fair, started it with his friend, whose name, of course, I've forgotten. And a whole bunch of up and coming writers who were not anybody at the time wrote for this, like Luke Sant, who wrote Low Life, famously, uh, Paul Rudnick in in this magazine and i you can see it online i'm going to try to do some screen grabs and stuff so we can put it on our instagram but you can read it online there are a couple of issues that that are available in archives um and i think that there is nothing that gives a better sense of new york in the 80s than these these magazines cool so i'm going to read three selections okay and even the ads are perfect because they have all of the New York club nightlife people in these ads. Like whoever, whichever ad agencies were doing these were very smart. So I'm going to read three selections from the inaugural uh, issue of Spy Magazine. And they had a whole bunch of, of different features that were recurring. And one of them that made me laugh out loud was their crime blotter. Okay, Okay. So... Just reading. Oh, and it was this issue came out in October. Spectator Sports, October's pick hit criminal trials. And I'm going to just tell you right now, some of the things that I've selected are, um, they reference things that we've talked about in the past. Cool. So it's just showing you like this, this was a very small pond Mm. with everyone talking about the same insanity. Uh Okay. So the public is welcome to, I'm sorry. The public is welcome to watch any of the following New York state Supreme court trials, which will take place at 100 center street in Manhattan. The court calendar and trial particulars are always subject to change. Of course, so call the courthouse at two one two three seven four five eight eight Oh for can details. You imagine? First one, Carl Andre, the minimalist sculptor is charged with murder. He allegedly shoved his wife, Anna Mendieta from an apartment window. <gasps> This will be in the uh, Chambers of Justice C. Berkman, <laughs> Criminal Court, Part 66. Andrew Crispo, the we art are gallery owner. Ah. Oh, Alfie doesn't like him. Uh, Andrew Crispo, the art gallery owner, alleged to have participated in the, quote, death mask torture of Eigel Vesti, ah. the late Fashion Institute of Technology student, ah. is to be tried on a charge of kidnapping someone else in an unrelated incident. And finally, Stanley Friedman, the Bronx Democratic leader and former law partner of the late Roy Cohen, is charged with bribery, forgery, coercion, and tampering with public records. Wow, I love this. But wait, there's more. Underneath that, the Wild Kingdom, spy's unofficial, highly selective account of incidents to which the New York City Police Department's Emergency Service Unit responded during the month ending August 15th. Quotes are the from the police dispatcher. Oh. No. East Fourth Street, rat trapped in bathroom. Quote, a large rat. <laughs> Upper West Side, bat in an apartment. New Lots <laughs> Avenue, Brooklyn, an attack cat. Upper Second Avenue, man with his foot stuck in the toilet. Oh. Brooklyn. Snake that, quote, left the scene before officers arrived. (laughs) And East 129th Street, dog needs, (laughs) this is my favorite. Wait, what? Dog needs tranquilizer so that police can search an apartment for spent rounds from a gun. (laughs) Oh, no. And then the last in this um, really, really dark (laughs) little selection is I stay away (laughs) from the waterfront. Spy's unofficial, highly selective account of incidents to which the New York Police Department Harbor Unit responded during the same month. Uh-oh. East River near Market Slip and South Street. Corpse or floater. Yeah. Hudson River near Gansevoort Street and Little West 12th Street. Corpse or floater. South Channel Bridge to Broad Channel Bridge, Queens. Shots fired from private boat being pursued by second private boat.
0: <laughs> Oh God! I've got to find out what that little was about.
1: cricket marina, Brooklyn, corpse or floater, <laughs> Harlem River, the Bronx, runaway stolen barge.
0: What exactly? I and mean, this stole is material for a, a stolen barge? barge,
1: and Bergen Yacht Club, Brooklyn, floater under the dock.
0: Oh no! So
1: clearly, dear Alfie is disturbed by this. So let's pick him up. I think that you're going to see why I chose this. Okay. So this is an an article called The Ten Most Embarrassing New Yorkers. Ooh, love it. And Alphonse D'Amato is one of them. Okay. Um, Andy Stein, who I believe was head of the Parks Department. Grace Jones. I don't know why they would say that. Let's see. They say long before anyone suspected she was anything other than a very large black woman. Ooh, Spy Magazine. What are they
0: saying? Grace Jones
1: knew she was the greatest. I'm bold. I'm a revolutionary. That was back in 1977. In those days, she was merely a high-strung model, taking her first steps into the short-lived limelight of disco music. Disco died, but like a loud, uninvited guest, Grace stayed on, gabbing remorselessly, mostly about herself, until the only impression remaining is that of a towering blur of indistinct sexuality peddling dirty pictures of herself. Rude. Very rude. But you're going to see that there is a little bit of a theme here with another reading that's coming up shortly. They also put in George Steinbrenner. And do you remember Rex Reed? Sure. Okay. So Rex Reed was. He's a critic. Right. But he also, he was much more. So let me let okay. me read this to you. When people say that standards of rigor and good sense were abandoned in the late 1960s, they usually have Abby Hoffman and Beans in mind. But consider this. Back in crazy 1968, Rex Reed was a respected figure in American letters, whom Time called, quote, the most entertaining new journalist in America since Tom Wolfe. Rex Reed? That period was brief, fortunately. Reed quickly moved downscale to the gong show and the murky middle parts of the New York Post. Unfortunately, however, Reed also moved back to New York. Now nearly 50 and taking up space in the Dakota, he represents himself as the embodiment of waspish wit and show business urbanity. Rex Reed loves New York, and that makes the rest of the country think New York loves him. Reed's epigrammatic put-downs are lame and arbitrary. Phrases meant to be mean are meaningless. For instance, he once called Women's Wear Daily a pimple of a publication with, quote, the sophistication of boiled peanuts. Praise is even more horrid. His positive reviews sound like the overblown testimonials of an unctuous Judy Garland fan after hoisting one too many Key Royales at the piano bar. Uh-oh. Rex Reed makes a living writing sentences in which nearly every word is ungrammatical, awkward, or wrong. So now they've slammed a woman and a gay man. Right. right?
0: I, you know, I don't like
1: spying Well, I'm, I'm sharing with you yeah. the, this was... <laughs> Again, Alfie, you know, this is just another illustration of how we at the time didn't notice so much of the misogyny and
0: um, anti-gay bias that, right. that we were steeped in. You and know? I wonder, too, if now there's just so much negative trolling that happens that maybe we're a little bit more sensitive to that. And this was just one because it wasn't ubiquitous. This it, is just one publication. It was the
1: only publication that had this tone.
0: Right. And now I feel like that tone is everywhere all the time. And hence why I am talking about it today. I
1: think it really it, it was so it was revolutionary to be this mean. Yeah. And this mm. snarky in a publication. But you know, those two things that I just read are really mean, but how do we feel about this one? Uh-oh. The final of the 10 and most embarrassing, Donald Trump. Forget the way he has imposed upon all of us his idea of class, more a dynasty notion of panache than anything even faintly evoking that uptown swagger that New York epitomizes. Forget his noxious tactics with tenants he wishes to evict. Forget the sheer cheesiness of Trump Tower, Trump Plaza, and his casinos. Forget the way he seems to have the times in his back pocket. Forget the hustler on his best behavior manner. In fact, forget just about everything concerning Donald Trump, except the stupid things he says. Quote, it would take an hour and a half to learn everything there is to learn about missiles. I think I know most of it anyway. Wow, I didn't realize that
0: dated back to the on his 80s. desire to
1: handle nuclear non-proliferation negotiations for the United States. Oh my God! Quote: They weren't even sculptures; they were stones with some engraving on them. They were nothing, just junk. His rationale for destroying Eli Jacques Kahn's Art Modern frieze on the front of the old Bonwit Teller building. Quote, electricians make a hundred and some odd dollars an hour. The concrete people just make fortunes. Laborers make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And finally, it's the greatest group of stores, the shops in Trump Tower, ever assembled under one roof. Well, it's probably the most expensive set of stores anyway. Yuck. Right?
0: So that's, that's a little something. Yeah, I mean... I know it's our fault. It's New York's fault. But we always knew he was gross. Well, that's
1: the thing. Is like, remember when? I mean, what w- ran... we should
0: have dealt with him years ago.
1: Well, when he ran for office, and everyone in New York just thought it was hilarious because that was our perspective, and yeah. and it was so galling that anyone we spoke to about it was like, no, he has really good points. Oh, like some moron, um... evil, and. Okay, so here's another little something. And again, this is this is about something that we've spoken about on the cast already. And I referred to it in the very opening, which is Tama Janowitz, one of the young literary lions. But because it's Spy Magazine, and I looked up who wrote this, um, his name is Melek Kalen, and he wound up being a nothing burger of a writer. He's a journalist. And he did some um, coverage, I think, of Afghanistan, but I don't think he was embedded. I saw his website. And the only things in it are from 2008. And he clearly abandoned his own website. So did he slam Tana? Oh, man. This is the most misogynistic unbelievable thing you could possibly believe. So we've switched roles today. Yes, you're all sunshine. And I am now filled with bile. (laughs) Mm. But here we go. Free the Tama Janowitz slaves. Surely there is no mistaking this authoritative new voice in our midst. It is Tama, Tama Janowitz, Fearless writer and female Jay McInerney, says the New York Magazine, whose tales of life downtown, collected as slaves of New York, have been published and reported on and reviewed ever so widely. She is the star of the first literary video, which, if her publisher's publicist is to be believed, could, quote, do for writing what MTV has done for music. (laughs) We need to look that up. Yeah. Ever since the cover story in New York Magazine, heralding her as, quote, the most talked-about writer of the year, she's been talked about incessantly in the remotest bazaars and byways of the English-speaking world. Last month, she left the city for Princeton, no less, where she will be the Alfred Hotter Fellow in the humanities. Let us say the name just one more time. Tama, Tama Janowitz, conjures with it a little... There's a frowsy, kooky cookiness, a certain zany specificity about it. The very sounds evoke a detailed image, as does her writing, of the uptowner's idea of the quintessential downtown gal, a sort of rubberized, all-weather, Lower East Side Tama doll with matching plastic pink dress, trashy earrings, and, quote, downtown hairdo. Tama Janowitz has very little to do with literature and everything to do with television. Her own video aside, Tamma Janowitz's writing, ephemeral, external, instantly forgettable, Mm. reads like a transcribed night's worth of rock videos. In the world of the plotless image,
0: the momentary pose
1: is king. And it just goes on and on.
0: That is the opposite of what my impression was when you read all three of those people out loud. Hers was the most narrative. It wasn't at all what he's describing. Nope. What the fuck?
1: Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot
0: that we love about the 80s,
1: but this is a really big wake-up call for me because I loved this magazine, and it was like a blueprint mm. for cool, true cool. Spalding Gray was featured in it. You know, people who right. really were cool. But reading it now... I'm horrified. I'm absolutely horrified. So I have now ruined for myself. <laughs> oh, <laughs> a wonderful memory. I just I look at the pictures. This, <laughs> I know I started out with this episode being like, "Yeah, spy," right. and now I'm just living in a world of, wah, wah. Yeah. <laughs> "Oh no!" And Graydon Carter, you know, he has really made a living out of being an asshole. He certainly made a ton of money for Vanity Fair and from Vanity Fair. Um, and he he was he's a cultural icon. But his his perspective when he didn't have, I think it's Condé Nast over his shoulder, this is this is also who he is. And it's the boys' club. It's it's just, you know, kind of sour. Yeah, guys tearing people down. Yep eek. So I vote if it's spy versus national lampoon, national lampoon one, spy zero.
0: Interesting. I'm glad that they're online so that we can post the actual thing and people can see what we're talking about. I mean, because it's also, it's a visual.
1: It's very, the the layout was revolutionary. When you see it online, I really, really, it's archive.org, look up spy magazine. Um, the visuals were completely fresh and now they're, you know, it's actually what Graydon Carter did in Vanity Fair. So now it's very recognizable.
0: Yeah. Um, and what do you think that is about like having to tear somebody else down?
1: Well, I'll tell you what I think it is with Graydon Carter.
0: Okay. So Graydon Carter, what country do
1: you think he's from? Britain? Well, that's what he'd like you to think and feel. He's Canadian. I think he's a bitter Canadian. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I
0: think. Does he talk with an accent? I don't know. We have to listen to him. He is the ultimate I'm in and you're not. Well, that's what I was thinking. This sort of like, this is a fantastic party and you're not invited. I'm I'm looking at, um, they had
1: a, a section called party poop mm. and they have photographs of all kinds of people who are, um, let's see. Okay. Talking about the legendary Tina Turner wearing a black leather. Uh, is it Aliyah? Yeah, Azadine Aliyah dress. Okay, so she's amazing. Okay, so they say, he says, wrapped for la, la mode en liberté at Lincoln Center, Tina Turner turned up with and in Azadine Aliyah, trussed up in one of the tiny designer's tiny designs. She resembled a black Michelin woman on a diet. Oh, my God. Gets better. Perhaps Christo, t- above, could have swaddled her more becomingly, or at least more loosely. Oh, I hate The this. next photo, Mrs. Mitzi Newhouse and her hangers-on come dressed as a marionette theater. Her date was a Grant Tinker impersonator, and Mrs. Schlong, standing, looked just like, well, Mrs. <sighs> Schlong. <laughs> so... Yeah, it was all about, I think, male ego, fragile, Mm. Graydon Carter's fragile male ego. If you're black, if you're a woman, or if you're gay, not good for you in in his world. Thank you, Graydon. Thank you, Graydon. But yeah, I think he's a bitter Canadian who always wanted to be at the party. And so he good for him. He made a party happen and then invited everyone so he could shit on them. Wow. (laughs) Yes. Although I hear his restaurant's very nice. What's his restaurant? Well he he bought the Waverly Inn. Oh my god. I used like, to go it was there. like hundred years ago that he bought. It. Yeah, I I used to go there before he owned it. I mean, it too. and it
0: and it was just a fun, nice place to be. Well, and, and then it became a it, place that's just so obnoxious. Well, once he bought it,
1: you you had to go on a wait list Ridiculous. to get in. So yeah.
0: So that's that's
1: a darker side of New York social life. It's worth looking at yeah. as a time no, capsule. No, thank you. This it's is a great. time capsule.
0: Yeah, and I'll definitely, I'll post a bunch of stuff. So because my mother has asked us to give the actual episodes that we reference so that she can, I don't know, listen to them again, which would be lovely if she did. We referenced episode number nine, the rat race and tag You're it and episode 14, Mr. Crispo's dark arts and escape from New York. Are we self-referential or is the city that self-referential? We are talking about one place and 10 years so it's going to constantly be coming back. I mean, if that's what you mean.
1: I think it's what I meant.
0: Yeah, I think it's what you mean. Yeah. yeah.
1: I'm yeah. not entirely sure what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, good. Excellent. What else do we have? What else do we have to cover? Anything? Just we're no. back. Well, we're
0: back. We're back. And what what did these two topics have in common? Spy Magazine and what's our tie-in? Oh, yay. Donald Trump owned
1: casinos. Ew. I know. Uh, I know. He's it's, the glue. I, well, it, uh, he's he's like the really gross, nasty, sticky. Like dried up glue stick that doesn't <laughs> quite work and you just keep <laughs> rubbing it on a on a piece of paper cursing Elmer's. Yes, that's that's <laughs> that's what he is. You know what I just realized? What? Elmer's glue has, I think it's a cow
0: as their, oh my God. Yes. As their Is part that of their bad? logo. Is that what they mean? Is that what they're talking about? Yeah. Like, like to the glue factor. Okay. That's
1: like another thing that we now need to look up <laughs> and maybe not tell anybody about, <laughs> but I just, I just had this really grim
0: realization.
1: <laughs> why a
0: cow Elmer's why mm, mm, mm. we all know why. Okay. Let's, let's think again about Curtis and Lou Curtis and Lou were lived, such nice people. They were lovely people. They lived a great life whether they had money whether they didn't have money. They well, just and enjoyed that's themselves the right and they it? enjoyed each other and I think that that, that should be uh, our closer, our closing image. Yeah. That New Yorkers live forever
1: and make the best of it. <laughs> yes. I love that. And yeah. don't be stingy with the mustard. Nice.